The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, that's one of those lines I did not grow up with, but I love the beauty of it. That after scripture is read, we actually say thank you. That God gave us his word so that we could begin to frame our lives around it and what it means for us. So it is so good to see you. Uh, if you are new here, my name is Brad Jackson, lead pastor here, and we are honored that you are here. I know we're not supposed to do this, but I have to. Um, I'm sick of the weather. I, uh, I know true Minnesotans don't go down that road. We're tough. Um, but yesterday, I, yesterday morning, I took my younger daughter, my eight-year-old Trinity, to, uh, she had a hockey game in uh, somewhere near Dodge Center over that way. So we went on the ice rink that they call Highway 14. I mean, it was nuts. Uh, so I, I'm just saying that out loud because I think some of you, many of you feel the same way and let's be in community around that, that we are struggling, our souls are hurting. If you need to repent, I invite you to do that. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 5. Before we jump in, let me pray. Father, it is good to be in this church community. It is good to gather on a cold day to come in to sing to you, to hear your word read, to get into your word. And God, we trust in this act that you will speak to us, that you will um, cause us by the power of your spirit to become more like your son. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my soul be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey, we are in a series that we are calling Blessed. It is a uh, five, six week series with uh, looking at the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter five, whether you're in the church or you're new to the church, it's probably a passage that you've heard time and time again, the Blesseds. And uh, here's where we are so far. Uh, the context in which we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5 is right before this in Matthew 4. Jesus had been teaching and he'd been doing two very important things. One is he's inviting people to come and follow him. And it's important to understand it's for sure the 12 disciples who will become apostles, but it's more than that too. When we get to early book of Acts, we find that it's 100 plus people that are really on that core committed team that Jesus has invited to come and follow him. And those who come and follow, he's teaching about the kingdom. And so we said, one of the best ways to understand what life with God is like, what a relationship with Jesus Christ is like, is trusting Jesus, trusting that he is all that he says he is, and living in the fullness of the kingdom now. Our life submitted and beginning to look like Jesus is actually in charge that maybe he is king of our lives and it begins to frame who we are. And then we come to Matthew 5, the sermon there sitting on a hill up in Galilee and Jesus is teaching to a group of people, actual people in an actual place. And we said each one of these statements is in the indicative. So it's not some future, you're gonna have this one day. It's not conditional that if I become pure in heart, if I become this, that, the other thing, maybe God will like me. Jesus is looking at an actual crowd and he is saying, you are blessed. And we've tried to get our minds around who these people are so that we can look at them in our community and say, we see you. We know you are here. You are loved. You are blessed. And then also understanding that they tell us about the kingdom. They give us a lens into the kingdom of God in a different way. And we try and say, what are we learning from them? 
What do the pure in heart, what do the meek, what do the merciful, what do they teach us about the kingdom of God so that we can become more fully people who are living in that kingdom? That's where we are so far. Uh, one thing I've read to you week in, week out is this statement from a theologian named David Lowes, and he says this about the Beatitudes. I think it's so good. There's a trap in the Beatitudes that I know I have fallen into countless times. And perhaps you have too. The trap is as simple as it is subtle. Believing that Jesus is setting up conditions of blessing rather than actual, actually blessing his hearers. Um, you can do nothing to earn a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It is everything that God has done in Christ for you. It is through a trusting relationship. So this is not saying you can earn something. This is a actual time message place and we're trying to learn what it looks like to begin to live more fully in that kingdom now. Matthew 5, and uh, let me look at verses 9 through 11 this morning. 9 through 11, we're going to look at the peacemakers. And uh, this is one where I want to take and apply it a little bit more to where we are. These actual peacemakers in the crowd, what do we learn from them? So that we can become that type of person. Verse 9, wonderful news for the peacemakers. You'll be called God's children. We're going to come back to that. Look at these next two verses. They're, they're very interesting. Put your minds around it. Jesus is talking to actual people in an actual crowd. Who are these people? Wonderful news for people who are persecuted because of God's way. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. People in the crowd who had been persecuted because they're naming God as king, Jesus as king. And when you say Jesus is king, who's not? Caesar. So they are somehow being persecuted for that. And they're told this wonderful news. Because one day when things are made completely right, and you're living fully in the kingdom of God where Jesus is fully king, you will experience everything you have hoped for. Then look at verse 11. Wonderful news for you. When people slander you and persecute you and say all kinds of wicked things about you falsely because of me. This is the, uh, the gospel we don't like to hear, right? It doesn't make sense that Jesus is saying wonderful news for those of you who are experiencing very bad situations. You're persecuted, insulted. It's because of me. And then here's the promise. Or the invitation, actually. Celebrate and rejoice. There's great reward for you in heaven. That's how they persecuted the prophets who went before you. This is one where I almost imagine the disciples looking and, and they're sort of getting the teachings of Jesus and Jesus is giving them almost a bit of a prophetic nudge that one day you will be the persecuted. After I go, you will be the insulted. Some of you will be martyred for my name and here's the crazy thing about the kingdom of God, you will still be able to rejoice. But back to verse 9. Wonderful news for the peacemakers. I, this morning, I just want to sit with this idea of what does it mean to be peacemakers? What do we learn from this group of people? Because I think this is actually a part of the Christian life that we all should embody. In first year Greek, one of the very first lines I ever uh, memorized in Greek because it sounded sort of cool and hip and 70s-ish was, Irene kai agape anthropos. Peace and love, man. What, 
What is it about this idea of peace that sort of captures our hearts, but yet we're prone to struggle with it so deeply? What does it mean to be peacemakers? Isaiah 9 says this, one of the great prophetic passages pointing towards Jesus. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the file, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulder and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You can just hear the choir singing that, right? That there's something so majestic and beautiful, the Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. Jesus as the Prince of Peace. What does that tell us? What is this idea of peace trying to get at us? After Jesus lives and dies and rises again, one of the very first things he does is he comes into that upper room where the disciples are cowering in fear, right? They're up there, they're afraid. The king has died. A, A dead king is not a good king. So they have reason to be in the upper room, cowering in fear. What are we going to do now? The king is dead and Jesus walks in and his first words are, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Time and time and time and time again in scripture we see this theme of peace. I want us to get our hearts and our minds around it this morning. If Jesus is the Prince of Peace and peace is this central thing that he talks about and if we are to be people who are to be formed into the image of Christ, as Paul says, how do we embody this idea of peace? And we understand that it starts with this peace in our heart, right? That it starts by experiencing the peace that God gives through Jesus Christ who died and rose again so that we can have a right relationship with God. But what does it mean to be people of peace? In the Old Testament, the word for peace is shalom. And in the Old Testament, it's this big and beautiful and robust word that shalom would come. They looked for it. It was central and key to Jewish thinking. Up on the screen, there's going to be a definition, and it's, it's a wordy, big definition, but it's absolutely beautiful. Cornelius Plantinga in his book, uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Brevery of Sin. Anytime you put the word brevery in a book, sounds impressive. It's a fabulous book, a fabulous book, and I would encourage you to take a look at it. He says this about Shalom. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, all creation, and justice. Fulfillment and delight in what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal, flourishing, wholeness and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. Its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creature in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. It's the kingdom of heaven fully come. It's when things are restored, made right. The opposite of shalom is anything that's not how it's supposed to be. 
If you go back to creation in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created, they were in right relationship with God, man and woman. Humanity was in good relationship and they governed and cared for God's creation. So when things were the way they were supposed to be, there was relational health with God. They walked with God. Relational health with one another and with God's creation. It is this big and beautiful and absolutely important thing for us to understand. Again and again and again in the scripture, and when we talk about peace, peace is often paired with this idea of reconciliation. So when you put peace and reconciliation together and you're understanding the idea of shalom is this big and beautiful picture when everything is right. What it says to us is a couple of things. If we are to be peacemakers, and I believe all of us are called to be peacemakers, if we are to be peacemakers, one of the things we do again and again and again is we enter in. This is so important. This is so, so important for us to understand that we enter in and reconciliation tied to it means that we enter into relational restoration, whatever it is. It can be huge. It can be nations at war. It can be homes. It can be schools. It can be cities. But we enter in and the goal of peace, the goal of shalom is always that we enter in so that things can be restored. You see, in the first century, they would have heard this. The zealots that were sitting in the crowd that Jesus was teaching there in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, there would have been people out in the crowd and maybe some of Jesus' disciples came from this way of thinking. The zealots were people who figured that the way to bring in God's reign was to lift the sword and fight. If we defeat Rome, then we will have our land, then we will have what God has promised, and God's kingdom will be here. And some of us are prone to that, right? We're zealots. When that natural human place of fear wells up in us, and we're in some type of relational, relational situation, the way in which we react as zealots is we lash out. We fight. In a polarized society like ours, that's so easy to do. Choose one side or the other, but that's where we go. We lash out. We're zealots. We fight. In the first century, there was also a group called the Essenes. You've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? That's probably related to the Essenes because what they did when Rome was in rule and Israel did not have her land, what the Essenes did is they just retreated. They said, There's no hope. And so, as people without hope, we are, we're, we're just going to go away and we will hide and cower in fear until things maybe get right, which they probably won't. And that's also some of us. Sometimes we think that peacemaking is just sort of sitting idly by and walking away or not even looking at the situation that is right in front of us. And I would contend that fear drives all of these. The disciples cowering in the upper room, that, that fear that's part of our human nature, I think, is what drives these unhealthy responses. 
And we go to a lot of these places, don't we? We evade reconciliation. We never enter into a process of peace. We try time and time and time again to forgive without ever entering into a relational conversation. You see, it's so important to understand peacemaking. It's not just niceness, Minnesotans, right? It's not just being nice. This is one of the places that one of my broken places is I often will think peacemaking is just being nice when in my heart is a lot of anger, a lot of fear. And it's not just tolerance. Peacemaking is not just tolerance. Peacemaking is entering in to any broken relational situation or system and bringing restoration. There's a great book we read at the uh, church I came from, from a few years ago called Blood Brothers. Has anybody read it by Elias Shakur? Um, it is a phenomenal read. It'll make you uncomfortable. And uh, Elias Shakur grew up in the Middle East. And uh, in the Middle East, we often think of sides, don't we? Israel, Palestine. You got to choose a side. And this is a priest in the Melkite church. And the Melkite church is a part of Christendom. And it goes back almost to the first century. Uh, really cool. We actually brought him in to speak. He's been up for three Nobel Peace Prizes. And in his story, it's so intriguing. Because you listen to his story and you listen to the uh, people who came in and took their land. And he has this posture that, that's absolutely amazing to me. Number one, his posture is not to run away. He sits in the middle of it, literally in the middle of it. And instead of choosing a side, because he, he has ties to both sides in the situation, he tries to enter into conversations that would lead to peace. And one of the most profound ways he does, and this is, I, I want you to get thinking bigger picture of peacemaking, one of the most profound ways he does it is on an average year, they have 2,500 kids that they educate. And one of the core focuses in the way they do education is to help them become peacemakers as kids. Isn't that cool? I don't know about you. That, that puts chills up and down my spine. What does it mean for us to be peacemakers? Jack Kingsbury said that shalom, peacemaking, is it's those who work for wholeness and well-being that God wills for a broken world. Any type of peacemaking is that. So here's the crazy thing. One of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Peace. And that's not just this inner peace where I feel good about my relationship to God, which is great. And if you're here wondering about what a relationship with God looks like, it's simply trusting in all that Jesus Christ is. That he came, that he died, and that he rose again, and that he wants a relationship with you. But the fruit of peace, it's something that we display on a relational level. It's who we are in relationships. And we see so much around us that's the opposite of it, right? You turn it to anything. I mean, watching Sports Center this week and all the coverage of that whole Miami Dolphin debacle, and it got me thinking, like, so what does a peacemaker do in a sports locker room? 
right? What do we teach our kids to be like in the locker room as peacemakers? If the fruit of peace is really something we display as followers of Jesus Christ, as peacemakers who enter in and enter into this process of restoration. By the way, restoration is this big and huge and beautiful and hard and challenging thing that's forgiveness and confrontation and health. I mean, it's, it's just massive and we don't have the time to break that all down. But we enter in. Romans 12, 18 says this, if it is possible, if it is possible as far as depends on you, Live at peace with all men. I think we want it. Genesis, my 10-year-old, at her elementary school, they have a group of kids that they call peacemakers. And so I was asking her last night, so what do you do? What, is, what does a peacemaker do? And, and um, she said one of the most important things they do is on the playground, their job is to watch for a couple of things. One is to watch if there's conflict, which might need somebody to step in. Their job's not, it's not to be a teacher out on the playground, but their job is to look around for conflict where they might be able to step in and help make things right. But here's the other one. Their job is also to look for kids who are alone and help teach them or help show them what it might look like to be a friend. Isn't that cool? That's peacemaking. That's shalom gone wrong and somebody stepping in and helping to bring peace. Crossview, week in, week out, there's so many things we talk about. But if we were known in our homes, in our city, in our schools, in the locker room of our sports teams, if we were known as people of peace, as peacemakers, wouldn't that be a good thing? In your workplace, if you work for 100 people or if you oversee 100 people, what if you were known as an employee or an employer who is a peacemaker? Does it mean you're punching bag? Doesn't mean you just take everything that's given you. It means you enter in to anything that is anti-shalom and you bring peace. I hope as you enter into this week that your eyes are wide open for anything that is not as God intends it to be. And my prayer, you can't do everything, right? You can't do everything, but you can do something. My prayer is that you start in one place. Be a peacemaker in one place. It might be your marriage. It might be your workplace. It might be a friendship. It might be a family situation that you know God is calling you into. But let God call you and actually enter in. Let's pray. Lord, we pray when we... Uh, Take communion each month. We do the Lord's Prayer and we talk about heaven coming to earth. And God, it is my belief that we are the people who go and do that. So Lord, as we think about, as we are called to be peacemakers, I pray, Lord, that we would have the intentionality by the grace of God 
that you have given us and by the power of your spirit to enter into those places you are calling us. That we would be known as people of peace. In the name of the Father, the Son of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.